0: Coming up on Breaking Badness, it's Voices from Infosec on the road. We talked to two analysts from Mandiant after the recent Cyber Defense Summit in Washington, D.C. Regina Elwell and Alyssa Rahman share how they got into Infosec, what they're working on, and along the way, you'll learn a thing or two about speed flying. Breaking Badness is next. So I'm at the Mandiant Cyber Defense Summit 2021 with Regina Elwell, who gave a fantastic presentation a couple days ago. And Regina, thank you so much for joining us on Breaking Badness.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me
0: yeah it's great i you know we've seen so many uh really interesting pieces of research over the last few days it's been a fantastic conference so uh it must have been exciting to be part of it was this your first cds or second or third or i've been to
1: several cds's even back into the mircon days my second time presenting okay yeah
0: okay yeah my my first one of these was mircon 2014 and i've loved it every time i've been very uh, uh felt very fortunate to um get invited here so Anyway, tell us about your role, what you do, and, uh, you know, maybe the team that you're working with.
1: Yeah, so I am currently a senior principal threat analyst, uh, a part of Mandian's advanced practices team.
0: I love, by the way, how that's APT. I'm pretty sure that's not an accident, right?
1: Uh, (laughs) Oh, coincidence, right? (laughs) Yeah, um, so I've been on the advanced practices team for four and a half years now, and it's a really awesome mission of being able to, know as much about more than uh, to know more about the adversary than anyone and to make that information actionable um to Mandiant um so playing that support role um prior to being on the advanced practices team I was on the consulting side of the house um so I've been with Mandiant for eight and a half years now and so it's been a good like long evolution there
0: did you work with Jen Coldy at all?
1: I did. Yeah, yeah. She
0: was awesome. So our the relationship between Domain Tools and Mandiant goes back uh, a bunch of years. And it was talking to Jen and some of your other folks that really helped us a lot in developing um, and advancing the tools that we've created for analysts. So, uh, so thank you all for that. It's been really a, a fun partnership um, with you all over the years. What got you into InfoSec or technology in general? Take us back.
1: Yeah, funny enough, I actually read Cliff Stoll's The Cuckoo's Egg. Oh,
0: that's a great read.
1: Absolutely loved it. And I was in a completely unrelated career field. And I was just like, it would be really cool to do that for a living. So I started looking into graduate programs and ended up going to George Washington Mm -hmm. and got my master's degree in high technology crime investigation. And then so did the career switch through education. Uh, and then was lucky enough to get a job as an associate consultant at Mandiant, uh, directly out of university, like for grad school, so.
0: I saw several uh, GWU students here uh, over the course of the last few days. Yeah, they've obviously got a good program there. And uh, what were you doing career-wise before that?
1: I actually worked at a commercial printing company.
0: So w- when you were growing up, were you interested in technology at all, or was that not really a thing for you?
1: Um, I was always kind of like the nerdy science math kid, um, and then in, during uh, undergrad, I I got a BS in biology, minored in chemistry, um, but then I also took computer programming classes as electives, hmm. <laughs> so um, there was always some interest there, um, but never i like it wasn't the prominent like for focus you of weren't it.
0: imagining it as a career yeah yeah uh
1: so but that book it it d- definitely just sparked the interest and it's like well if i could do that for a living like you wouldn't like re- um avoid work like you would. it would just be fun
0: yeah we'll put the book in the show notes because uh, <laughs> if you haven't read it yet and you're at all interested in InfoSec, which you probably are if you're listening to Breaking Badness, uh, you should check it out. It is a rollicking good read. Um, so let's, go, let's come back to the present. What are, what are you looking at? I mean, to the extent that you're able to talk about it, what are you looking at? What's interesting right now?
1: Um, so within advanced practices, um I'm in a particular group uh, where we're focusing on like the content from the talk, um doing deep dives, like looking at um, either taking a group or a particular topic, and then saying, like, what do we know about this and can we expand like our understanding of it um it, are there other clusters that are the same like um going back and looking through our archives so both looking at the information that's coming in live what's happening on the front lines now but also looking at i mean we have over a decade of um, incidents that have been cataloged and um whatnot over the years so then going back and looking at some of this information and saying can we tie these things together? Um, are there additional analytical techniques that we're using in present day um, that we weren't using five years ago and say like, are there things are there overlaps that we haven't seen before? Um, advanced practices um, and other um, um, orgs within the company have always had a mission to merge groups like and do this graduation process. Um, but we've never really had a particular team that like one hundred percent of their focus does this type uh, uh, of work. Um so f- having that focus on the deep dives really allows us to to go through a lot of this historic information
0: so uh, the so the talk that you gave, uh, you mentioned this word merge and that was yeah. a key part of it. Um, I have, I'm gonna go into a couple of more specific questions about it, but stepping back, um, can you give just a kind of a summary of what that talk was and what this merging process means?
1: Yeah, so the talk was uh, going o- overboard with unc 785, um, and we're, we really use that as uh, a use case for examples of, to t- really talk about our process of how we categorize groups uh, within Mandiant. Um, so we break it down in three major buckets, um, APT, so your Advanced Persistent Threat, uh, Espionage—it's typically na- nation-state sponsored. Those types of um, groups. They have FIN, which is short for financial, um, and so uh, you have those types of cluster groups. So you have your FIN sevens. We just graduated FIN twelve, so that's brand new out um, as of like an hour ago. Uh, and then um, we have UNC, so our uncategorized groups. And that Oh, can... wait,
0: that doesn't stand for University of North Carolina.
1: <laughs> Funny enough, where I went to undergrad, so. Oh, there you go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so un- uncategorized, yeah. Yeah. Okay, it, continue. And
1: so uh, uncategorized in the sense that um, they could be smaller uh, groups or th- groups that we feel like we need to develop more before we go through the graduation process. Um, so lots of different clusters and um, we always talk about how like unks are cheap, so it's much easier to unk a group, uh, get that cluster of activity, and then look to see do we have actual techno uh, uh, techniques and the things that overlapped to be able to prove that this cluster of activity and another cluster of activity are similar enough that we we can in high confidence say it is the same group uh, doing it, and then the merge is to where we. Uh, change the labels uh, right. it, in our system, in the database to be able to say this is all should be all considered the same group, the, the same threat actor.
0: So just as a procedural thing for people out in the world who are consuming like the reports that you do and stuff when you when something gets merged. So it was unc one, two, three, and now it's part of unc four, five, six. Yep. Do you go back and change the reports or redirects or something so that people will know, oh, now this thing has a new you know, so the new it, identity.
1: In Mandiant Advantage, the new information is referenced. Um, gotcha. So you will see that. Uh, I don't know if a lot of the old crazy historic stuff like gets like sure. the actual wording in the report changed, yeah, but yeah, yeah. like there there is that trail and that reference there. Yeah.
0: So. yeah. Okay, so you're figuring out which things correlate between these disparate groups. And in your presentation, I think you started with, there were something like seven or eight of them. Is that right?
1: so it comes down to hundreds like in the presentation we we brought, we brought down to um uh, i think eight total merges for that particular yeah. effort um but you start looking at um like kind of the pyramid that we came up with was like uh, tooling and techniques and then host or incident timeline and then infrastructure and so we're like looking at all these different categories of types of overlaps and uh every piece that you add to this can either expand your your net or potentially like bring it narrow it down and so what we're looking for is when you have many of these overlaps to be able to say like okay like they use the same malware all right well how many groups use cobalt strike or how many groups use like a particular malware like using the same malware isn't a good example uh, for solely using it like Like it's one it is a good thing to be able to say they use the same tool they use the same piece of like the same family of malware um but solely saying that everyone that uses this tool is the same is right is a bad overlap right. um but then you like say like okay they use this tool but they also use the same password mm-hmm. like and this password isn't password like it's like 24 characters long sure. and it looks random and yeah and it's yeah. unique and you're like okay well it's Highly unlikely that two people just like randomly guess like this is the password that they want to use, or and then you look at different techniques. Like, um, are they using the same command line parameters? Are they using the same uh, tooling? Are they using the same like um, uh, implementations? Um, like, are they using the same like settings of things? Um, and then like looking, it, it, then you go into like uh, host and incident timeline. So is it. Uh, can you tell that they're targeting the same industries? Are they t- targeting the same organization? Or do you have two clusters that are active on the same host, like using the same user account? Um, and so like, there are more things that you can tie in that like the likelihood that, that it's one actor or um, uh, at the same time is, just increases, and then obviously infrastructure. Um, so if they're using the same IP address in the same time period, um, or the same domain in the same time period, um, it becomes uh, more and more likely that it's the same group.
0: God, uh, wouldn't it be cool if there was some research, some uh, tool that let you <laughs> kind of correlate these domains and IPs and stuff and tie them all together? Somebody ought to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that so that's really interesting. So you find you know the more correlating data points that you can find, obviously, the more your confidence grows that these things are in fact related. It's not some spurious correlation. Yeah. Um, one thing, like you know, a lot of people are familiar with the diamond model, and one of the vertices of the diamond model is victimology. Is that part of the the calculus for you guys? I was a little surprised that that wasn't there. And your co presenter Dan Perez mentioned this verbally really briefly, but it didn't come up and I was just a little surprised um, that that wasn't also one of the correlating factors, but it, does that enter into it at all or?
1: Yeah, we definitely talked about um, targeting a little bit in like the host and incident timeline. Um, we didn't focus on it too much cause we were trying to keep like high level for the presentation, but absolutely it comes in um, because if um, two clusters are going after the same industry that you see that it hitting many organizations, but it's all in a particular thing, like they're going after, I don't know, a helicopter schematics or mm-hmm. like whatever, um, it, it definitely keys our interest and it helps build out a profile for that threat actor.
0: So. Gotcha. That's interesting. So what do you think, peer into your crystal ball? <laughs> What do you, if you're, can you extrapolate from the changes in TTPs that you've seen so far and extrapolate forward to what you think, I don't know, if you were a threat actor, what would you be doing next? Maybe you shouldn't say this because you're really good at what you do. That You shouldn't tip them off with these ideas. But what are some things that you think are kind of, that you're waiting to see, that you kind of expect to see down the road?
1: Um, I I do think that it is. I guess expected and uh, impressive at the same time um, that we do have threat actors that pay attention to information that is publicized about them. Um, and so being able to, to watch that evolution happen. Um, so when a report comes out, not necessarily by us, like we've seen it happen sure. for us, but some other organization, any information that's put out and then you actively see the TTPs change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always think that that is impressive to see the constant pivot and the constant like evolution of the work, like oh well, that that's how they're detecting us, and now we we shouldn't do that. Um, and, and seeing uh, that constant pivot. Um, so what should they be doing moving forward? I, I think that you'll see probably see um, Fin Twelve um, now that we, that's all posted. Uh, I I would only imagine that we're probably going to see an evolution of what they're doing now based on the information in the report
0: so yeah. yeah i think we can expect that all right shifting gears a little bit favorite infosec twitter follows
1: oh I, i'm really a, a bad person to ask for that i'm the worst at twitter we were just joking um because i come up with my one tweet a year maybe two tweets oh, that's a year
0: <laughs> yeah chris krebs said twitter it's where everybody gets their news now <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do really in, enjoy Chris crabs, but like I, I don't follow Twitter for yeah, the most part, yeah. so. Uh, that's
0: probably smart. <laughs> <laughs> it can really depress you sometimes. Yeah. Uh, there are always good cat videos. But
1: I will though. post about this.
0: Okay. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Uh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. What do you like to do when you're not saving the world?
1: Oh, um, this always comes up. Um, I, I really enjoy um, paragliding and speed flying, and yeah, uh, anything that really flying involved. So, oh, yeah.
0: oh, we have some things in common. Uh, <laughs> I have never been paragliding. Yeah, I have a gift certificate for it. And if I don't use it soon, my wife is going to throw me off the cliff without the paraglider. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I really want to try that. But you said speed flying. What is that?
1: Yeah, speed flying is like a, a small, fast version of a paraglider. So rather than trying to stay up, you're going down mountains fast.
0: Gotcha. So, yeah. yeah, that that looks really... I want to try hang gliding. Yeah. Because I like the, I don't know, I like the, the wing aspect, the way that that wing is. Yeah. And so I've always wanted to give that a shot.
1: Uh, To me, hang gliding seems scary. Like with a more of a fixed wing. Isn't that interesting? Is (laughs) that because
0: you're sort of you you have it is a parachute, so like you don't have to have a parachute because it is one. Yeah. Is that that why? Yeah. Well, because I went
1: the evolution of like skydiving and base jumping and then um, paragliding. So um, to me, hang gliding is more like it's more closer to a fixed wing, and um, yeah, I just I'll stick to more fabric.
0: Well. Uh, Regina Elwell, thank you so much for joining us on Breaking Badness. Uh, It's been awesome. We would love to uh, have you back sometime and hope you enjoy the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Our next interview on Voices from InfoSec is with Alyssa Rahman, also from Mandiant. And Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: You know, you are one of those uh, great posters on InfoSec Twitter. Um, you always have interesting things to say and insights and stuff and, and fun things as well. So uh, we'll put your Twitter handle in the show notes. But tell us what your role is uh, at Mandiant.
2: Yeah. So I am a principal researcher on Mandiant's uh, advanced practices team. And my day-to-day varies a little bit, but uh, I think most of the stuff that I do falls into a couple of buckets, One being just diving into techniques that we're seeing uh, from intrusions. We work really closely with our incident response teams um, to make sure that we can see what's actually being done by attackers, uh, especially at our customers. And then the other aspect of my job is a lot more threat hunting. So um, looking for what we like to call weak signals, which um, are things that may not necessarily be firm proof that something is evil or malware, uh, but it can be really interesting, especially as you start layering those signals together. And it can help you find some really intriguing uh, attackers and sometimes brand new tradecraft. So uh, that that's the majority of what I do.
0: Is the threat hunting that you're talking about inside customer environments or out on the internet or some of each?
2: it's kind of a combination and we will do searching through the telemetry from from customers but um, definitely I think most security companies also take advantage of like public uh, sandboxes and other Intel feeds to um, kind of expand their visibility because there's always a little bit of a data bias if you're only looking at just your customers
0: yeah that makes sense and you know when we think about When we think about threat hunting it's actually it's not a monolithic thing right there's so many different ways and places and so forth that you can hunt and one of the things that we uh, always like to promote and encourage for folks is hunting on adversary infrastructure that's out there on the internet looking outside your firewall as well as looking within because you can often expose some really interesting things and also you know pieces of attack infrastructure that may be Getting ready to do something bad, but haven't done something bad yet.
2: Absolutely, we have a team uh, on the advanced practices uh, team that looks explicitly for that that sort of thing. They'll be searching the internet for patterns that we've identified that show something could be maybe a Cobalt Strike team server, or um, you know, some other malicious like phishing site or some other C two and it's really interesting to see the kind of stuff that they're able to surface before it's even been used um, to target any other organization. And it's kind of cool to have that early alerting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And where this gets practical, for you know, I can imagine somebody listening and thinking, wait a minute, you know, are you saying I should just spend my time? Looking out at the internet when I've got stuff maybe on fire in my own environment. And, and we're not saying that. Like, if <laughs> no, you're a security researcher, that's pretty awesome to do. But what we, what we do talk about is if you notice something bad in your environment and then look at what it's connected to out there in, uh, on the internet. Now, that actually can be very applicable and, um, and useful and also not necessarily take a whole ton of time to find some of those connections. So, yeah, that's kind of what we're driving at in our our interest in, uh, adversary infrastructure based hunting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's something that may not be the first priority, um, for an internal team on a day to day, but it can provide some really crucial context if they have something happen in their network.
0: Yeah, for sure. So Alyssa, what got you interested in this to begin with? Are you, um, like, has your whole career been doing this kind of thing or what got you here?
2: Well, I'd like to say it was a, a really sophisticated reason. But to be honest, I just really enjoyed uh, spy stories and mysteries and stuff as a kid. Um, and so when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to be a detective when I grow up. I'm going to catch bad guys. And uh, when I was trying to figure out what like degree to do, I realized I was torn between being a detective and really liking computers and my mom, who had majored in math and computer science, was like, hey, uh, the way that computers are secured is with encryption. You could do cryptography because that's kind of code breaking. It's kind of computers. And I was like, yes, all in, let's do it. And then I realized it was a lot of math. So I pivoted really fast from that. And um, I went to, to school for a computer science degree with a focus on more of the incident response defense side. Um, with the thought of essentially, you know, going the cyber detective incident response route when I graduated. Um, but then when I graduated, I got an opportunity to work at Mandiant on the the red team and I hadn't planned on it, but they were telling me about all these cool things that they had hacked and all this fun stuff that they were learning. And it was honestly just a little bit too tempting. So, um, I I joined the red team, worked there for a few years. And then about a year and a half ago, I uh, got a chance to do a rotation with the advanced practices team on the research side. And I think for me, it was just super fun. Um, but I ended up putting in a request to actually transfer teams because with red team, some of the stuff that I really, really enjoyed was digging deep into the tradecraft and the techniques, how they worked, and how to make them stop working. Um, and to an extent, you, know, you, you get to a point where you want to keep learning more advanced techniques, but at some point, that's not really what the customers need from you. They need you to emulate the more um, common attack paths, which is great and really, really valuable, but I ended up getting to a point where the problems uh, sets and the, the kind of technical topics I was interested in. Um, there was just such a wealth of that that needed to be, uh, solved on the defensive side. And so when I got to switch over to my current team, I basically just get to research those techniques, but with, instead of emulating it in a single customer network, it'd be, um, hunting for it at scale. So I've really enjoyed kind of the pivot from, uh, Red to
0: blue makes sense, and you know something that's interesting in what you said there is it is when you're studying advanced tradecraft or cybercraft as the gruck says we should we should be saying, which kind of makes sense um, it there's the really advanced stuff, the really obscure stuff uh, you know some of the like exfiltrating data through audio and other methods like that. They're really mission impossible type stuff is super cool and super interesting. What do you think about, do you think there's a risk that we as an industry like that it's too easy for people to get locked onto those things because they're cool and interesting at the expense of paying attention to the more mundane things. And I don't mean researchers who need to, who need to research those more, Uh, sophisticated, rare things. I mean, those of us who are involved in sort of the everyday blocking and tackling, what about that? Like it's, it's really easy to kind of chase shiny objects. Is there, do you think that's an issue or do you think it's, it's not,
2: you know, I can definitely see it. I think it's just a human thing, like red team, blue team, even outside the security industry of there's a, an interest in researching or, um, kind of diving deep into the stuff that's new or the stuff that other people are posting about. And that just kind of makes a lot of sense. But then, you know, on the other hand, we'll see the trends year over year of people using the same handful of tools and the same handful of, um, attacks across all of these organizations because they're still working. Um, and I, I would say there's definitely room for both. I think, um, continued research into vulnerabilities and different ways to both test and secure networks is definitely still necessary. Um, But I do think that also, you know, the kinds of organizations that are mature enough and have a security team uh, and can, you know, pay for a red team assessment or an EDR may be a different data set than the ones who... um, you know, are going to be getting compromised by these r- more commodity, or I guess, older techniques that are just still working. So it, I think there's, there's definitely a um, benefit to continued research, but there's also like, we have to understand that there's, I, I think I mentioned it before, there's a data bias and a selection bias in the customers that we get to see. And um, it's important to kind of keep that context in mind.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the ways that I've seen this, that we're seeing this play out in real time is it's appropriate that ransomware gets the amount of attention that it does because it's a huge issue. I mean, that's that's just uh, not controversial. But business email compromise, for example, which is a much older concept and in some ways probably less interesting, especially from a technical point of view, is costing dramatically more dollars. Um, and so it could be easy to lose sight of the fact that some of these more basic techniques are costing us more than the ones that are in the headlines all the time. And I uh, I also, you know, related to that. I mean, I wrote a blog uh, a little while ago that was, uh, the title was, We Know How to Stop Ransomware. And, and the point was that You know, it's composed of all these individual techniques that each of which by itself is something we know how to deal with as an industry um, and as defenders. The problem is there are so many, you know, sort of an almost almost practically infinite number of combinations and permutations of those that uh, attackers can use that even though we know how to defend against the individual ones, the combined sum of them is very tricky to actually stop.
2: Yeah, it gets, I, I think we, we kind of run into the problem a lot of times that security is expensive um, and we haven't figured out an easy solution to it yet. So um, I definitely agree with you that there's a wide range of attacks that organizations are having to fend off.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of an entropy problem in that there's an infinite number of disordered states. And that's the playground that the the bad guys get to play in. And then there's a finite number of ordered states, which is where you're secure. And that's the playground we all have to play in. And uh, so there's an asymmetry to that that's always going to make this job challenging. Um, shifting gears a little bit, what are some things that you are researching right now that you find especially interesting?
2: Oh, man. Well, let me think of things that I can talk about, so
0: yeah, this is kind of the cool thing, right is that it's it's kind of fun that there's stuff that you yeah, can't talk about, but yeah but it whatever, it so whatever you hard, can talk
2: about because uh, it's also interesting um, so one thing you know, kind of along the lines of hunting for for weak signals and um, just kind of trying to add context to data, one of the things that um I was working on you know recently was looking at, I was looking at, I guess, emails, phishing emails and the malware that comes along with them. And I noticed that when I was triaging those uh, events, if I saw something like enable macros or please download this security patch, you know, stuff that we've seen attackers use, but also like that I can remember using as a red teamer, um, that kind of phrasing While it didn't mean that the email was malicious, it definitely like is a red flag for me as an analyst. And I realized that I had a blind spot um, for non-English phishing lures, and it can be, you know, challenging to have that same context if you don't speak whatever language it is you're reviewing. And so I kind of set about figuring out a way to automate generating rules that just tagged if they saw certain, you know, quote unquote, suspicious phrases in different languages. So if it comes up in Urdu, Spanish, French, um, you would still be able to have that context of what it's saying. And, um, you know, not all of our rules and our, um, detections quote unquote that we put out will be to detect evil. It's sometimes they're just for labeling and contextualizing the data. So, um, I've been working on that and it actually ended up being a lot more of a, a technical like challenge, I guess, than I expected because Yara, the rule type that I was using, doesn't support non ASCII um, conditions. So I was having to do some, <laughs> yeah, I, I had to do I a bunch of funky encoding stuff stuff, um, to make sure I was catching it. So like UTF eight, 16, 32. So. But it was really fun because you know then you start seeing all of the the hits pouring in and you get to to triage and kind of piece things together.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It's like you use the uh, metaphor of weak signals, but then there's also, this is maybe, I don't know, these might be medium or strong signals, but they are in what had been blind spots before and and you're illuminating those blind spots. I
2: think a lot of threat hunting comes down to being able to find the things you don't know that you don't know and trying to systematically attack those areas to to find patterns or anomalies that you can get a grip on to start finding more uh, malware and evil stuff.
0: What do you think we as an industry are not talking about enough? Um, either Either sort of at the industry side like vendors and so forth or practitioners are do you do you have any things that are sort of like frustrations for you because people don't talk about them enough but that are major factors
2: oh man um I you know I think ransomware is one of those issues that for a long time was kind of seen as like a commodity you know they're they're using older techniques whatever but it's become such a Public nuisance really and affected so many things that it, it, kind of the inverse of your question. But I've actually been um, happy to see the industry wide and even outside the industry approach everybody's been taking to tackle this because it's something that, you know, a ha- handful of rent teamers or just the security industry wouldn't be able to solve it. It's going to require um, a lot of cross discipline collaboration. So, uh, it didn't really answer your question, but I I've I've personally been encouraged to see the increased discussion and collaboration about issues like that.
0: It was, you know, it was very clear one of the themes that came up over and over again at the Cyber Defense Summit was that this has gone from being just a nuisance to a national security issue and and probably you could argue an international security issue. And in some ways, a geopolitical issue now uh, because of where so much of the ransomware stuff is originating and where the victims are and everything. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And then we heard also a whole lot at the summit about the importance of, as you say, collaboration. And And one of the forms of collaboration I heard mentioned over and over again was public sector, private sector partnerships.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the progress we've made in that area, especially over the past year, has been really cool.
0: Yeah, it seems like that's accelerating. The, the whole concept there is getting a lot of momentum, which I think is a great thing. Cool. Hey, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, talk to us about um, some of the fun side of things. So, so, Or this can be sort of work and fun. Who, who are some favorite uh, InfoSec Twitter follows?
2: Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I mean, not going to lie, Nick Carr and Steve Miller, who did used to work at, uh, at Mandiant, they have a quality combination of technical content and memes, is how I would describe it, <laughs> which I think is peak InfoSec Twitter, if I'm being honest. So those are probably two of my tops.
0: That's kind of Joe Slowick's brand is uh, InfoSec truths and memes um, and really heavy, heavy uh, doses of both.
2: Yeah. You got to smuggle in the like super technical discussions about hex encoding with, with a couple of gifts.
0: It's like, uh, it's like truth bombs. It's like you're smuggling truth bombs uh, in with those, those uh, funny memes. So what about outside of work? Like what's, uh, what's fun for you? What do you like to do?
2: Um, Well, I mean, pre-pandemic, I was a lot more active. I, Um, I, I enjoyed doing Krav Maga, which is like an Israeli self-defense martial art. Uh, I got to level three, was doing rock climbing, really active. And then the pandemic hit. So, um, (laughs) I don't, I haven't done that in a while, but I got a cat. So I'm much more of a homebody now. So now Um, you can
0: produce your own cat pictures and videos. Exactly. Which is really what the internet is for.
2: I mean, it's my primary goal. But yeah, my my cat likes to play tag and hide and seek for some reason. So that's probably the most uh, active I get these days. But I I live in the D.C. area and I, there's always tons of festivals and stuff. So I usually spend my weekends kind of exploring the neighborhoods.
0: You know, you're the second person that we have interviewed recently on Voices from InfoSec who identified climbing as something that they like to do. We talked to a researcher who goes by the handle Null Cookies, uh, and he's interested in ice climbing. And he said that some of the things that made that so appealing to him are actually some of the same things that make InfoSec and hacking and so forth interesting as well. You know, the creativity and problem solving and stuff that go along with that.
2: Yeah, I mean ice climbing sounds scary. I do, I do indoor rock climbing, but I I definitely agree. I have to trick myself into working out, and I think um the learning a skill or having a like kind of decipher where you're going to go up the wall is is enough for me to forget that I'm working out.
0: Yeah, you're doing a puzzle at the same time. Exactly. Well, Alyssa Rahman, thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a really fun interview, and we are so grateful on Breaking Badness to be able to talk to folks such as yourself. So any uh, any parting words of wisdom for the audience?
2: Uh, No parting words of wisdom, although I do want to say I think you guys have the best podcast name.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. All right. Well, uh, that will wrap things up for today. So thanks again.
2: Thank you. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at domaintools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at DomainTools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badis. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.